This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Can you think of anything more terrifying than jumping out of a plane and your parachute not opening? It's the kind of thing most of us would only experience in a nightmare, right? A handful of people have lived this and survived. You're about to hear from one of them. It's an extraordinary story, what it feels like coming to terms with your death in just a few seconds and knowing that your loved ones are watching on all that time. Also, when you do survive, how do you live with that trauma? Stay listening. We'll have that account very soon. First, though. Hack. She said she never did it. She never did it. And it's taken 20 years. On Triple J. Yeah, it's been described as one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in Australian history. A woman spending 20 years in jail convicted of murdering her four young children. Now, New South Wales woman Kathleen Folbig always maintained that she was innocent. And today, she was pardoned and released from jail. Why? Well, it had to do with new scientific evidence. We'll speak to an expert in a minute about what this means exactly. Does it mean Kathleen Folbig is innocent? What are her options now? Will she be paid compensation? First, though, here's Shalila Medora to bring you up to speed. I'm firmly of the view that there is reasonable doubt as to Ms Folbig's guilt. In 2003, Kathleen Folbig was found guilty of the murder of three of her children and the manslaughter of a fourth, who were aged between 19 days and 18 months old at the time of their death. Today, she was granted an unconditional pardon by the New South Wales Attorney-General Michael Daly and has already been released from jail. This has been a terrible ordeal for everyone concerned and I hope that uh, our actions today um, can put some closure on this 20-year-old matter. Folbig's conviction rested on two things. The now debunked theory that three sudden infant deaths in one family were always the result of murder and on Folbig's own diary entries. Following their deaths in May 1999, Craig Folbig handed his wife's private diaries over to police. They would form the basis of their case against her. Entries like... My guilt about them all haunts me. What scares me most will be when I'm alone with the baby. Kathleen Folbig has always maintained her innocence, while her ex-husband Craig and her adoptive parents were convinced of her guilt. She's definitely guilty. Those, uh, those four children should be here now. My most humble thanks go to 12 people who I've never formally met, who today share the honour of having set four beautiful souls free to rest in peace. A 2019 inquiry into the Folbig case uncovered new scientific evidence that Folbig and two of her girls, Sarah and Laura, shared a genetic variant that was linked to heart problems. Despite that, the inquiry maintained Folbig was guilty. Then, two years later, 90 scientists from around the world signed a petition. The petition was based on an international study which found an arrhythmia syndrome was a reasonable explanation for the death of the Folbig girls, while the boys carried different gene variants shown to cause life-threatening early-onset epilepsy in mice. The Australian Academy of Science acted as an independent advisor to the second inquiry into Folbig's convictions. We had experts from Australia, but also from around the world to bring the most up-to-date knowledge for that inquiry to consider. 
Head of the Academy, Anna Maria Arabia, said Australia has fallen behind the rest of the world because we don't have a way for science to inform legal decisions after avenues of appeal have been exhausted. There are myriad cases where there have been pleas for pardons and other such things based on new evidence coming to light. This is why something like a Criminal Case Review Commission could look at those uh, cases independently and determine whether a new process is required. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. I want to get into this a bit more with someone who's been following Kathleen Folbig's case closely. Associate Professor Michelle Reuters is with RMIT's Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. It looks at cases where a person may have been wrongfully convicted. She's with us now. Michelle, welcome back to Hack. Good afternoon. I'm pretty pleased to be here. Look, it seems like an extraordinary development. Were you expecting Kathleen Folbig would be pardoned and released from jail? I think we were all um, expecting this, particularly after the the medical evidence emerged in 2015. And it's um, really, um, I think, um, really depressing to think that it took this long for something to happen. Does a pardon mean that Kathleen Folbig's convictions are wiped? Is she innocent? No, what it means is it it, um, it takes away the conditions of the conviction, but for the conviction to be removed itself, it has to go back to the, um, to the Court of Appeal um, to be quashed. So what's likely to happen is that um, Bathurst will refer that question about whether or not it should be quashed to the Court of Appeal, and I'm going to guess that's going to be successful. And then she can um, either move on to seeking compensation or suing for it, as Gordon Wood did recently. How rare is it to see a pardon like this, Michelle? They're very rare. Um, Even in wrongful conviction cases, um, I think the... um, Certainly... So... um, as far as pardons are concerned, I think the most significant one um, that we know of in our time, which is very similar to Kathleen's, is Lindy Chamberlain's. But there's also um, Henry Keogh's in South Australia. And these tend to only happen in really exceptional circumstances in cases of palpable long conviction. Um, you can have many um, pardon petitions Um, I think numbers go through, certainly in New South Wales, every year and only, you know, like a handful are ever successful and only in really extraordinary circumstances like this. And do we know how often people are wrongfully convicted? I'm guessing the numbers around that are probably really difficult to come across, but is there any kind of estimation idea? We have no idea in Australia. Um, we We can try and base an estimate on US data which some experts put around 3% of all convictions. But the reality is neither um, us nor the United States really have any way of finding out. We tend to only see the really high-profile cases or the ones involving really serious criminal activity. We never hear about the wrongful convictions that are based on false guilty pleas, um, uh, convictions where people just don't have the capacity to ask the right questions of their lawyers um, or, or lack resources, you know, to challenge um, any part of the process along the way. I mean, three percent sounds like a huge amount. If that is, if that is what it is, are you working on other cases like this at the moment, Michelle? Like, how many cases are being investigated in Australia for wrongful convictions? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know, but there are a number of projects across Australia. I know that we're, um, you know, we're looking at. 
approximately 160 at the moment, but um, and we, you can't look at that number in detail all the time. So we, we try to rotate through them and I imagine all the other projects do. But it's extraordinarily labour intensive because we're trying to give it the time and attention that the case um, just didn't get at trial. Yeah, look, it's um, really interesting stuff. Uh, people fascinated with this story and we'll be hearing a lot more about it, I'm sure. Associate Professor Michelle Reuters from RMIT's Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative, thanks very much for coming on Hack. My pleasure. Hack. I know that death is coming. It's a certainty that I'm going to hit the ground and I'm going to die. On Triple J. How many of you have got a skydiving voucher for your birthday? The ultimate present, right? Especially for a milestone like your 21st. It's wild, it's exhilarating, it's extravagant. It's a way a lot of people like to force themselves to feel alive by taking a massive risk or what feels like a massive risk. And that's what it was for Brad Guy. On the 31st of August, 2013, Brad redeemed his birthday skydiving voucher. He got all his friends and family together, drove to Victoria's beautiful Yarra Valley, got the safety briefings, went up in the plane. But soon, Brad and his instructor were falling 15,000 feet at 80 k's an hour and their parachutes did not open. Incredibly, Brad Guy survived, but he wasn't the same person. He's written a book about the decades worth of recovery it's taken to get him here today. It's called Freefall and Brad is with me now to talk about it. Brad Guy, welcome to Hack. Thanks for having me. I know it's really difficult to speak about. This whole book is about dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. But I'm hoping you're going to be able to take us back to that day for people listening so we get an idea of who you were, how you were feeling. What was going through your head as you were up in that plane and you were about to jump? Look, I was definitely nervous. The entire day I was anticipating, I was anxious. There was kind of this undercurrent of impending doom. I could just feel this uneasiness and I put it down to just doing a thrill-seeking activity. I'd done a lot of stuff like that before, done bungee jumping, hot air balloons, all of that. So doing skydiving was a really natural progression for a thrill-seeker like I was at that stage in my life. And as we're approaching the edge of the plane, and this plane is small, it's rickety, there's no seats in it, you definitely feel the height. And I was nervous. I was a nervous wreck. But just put everything down to this is an extreme activity. So, of course, I'm going to have these feelings. And the instructor is edging me closer and closer to the side of the plane where we're about to jump out. And he points a GoPro at my face and, of course, I make a dark joke. He says, any last words? And I say, yeah, hope my parachute opens. Wow. Little did I know what was actually going to happen. And that's when we began our freefall outside the plane. How did it feel at first? It's euphoric. It's an amazing feeling. It, you feel like you're falling, and it sounds really obvious, but the weightlessness and the velocity that you're falling, it's an amazing feeling. And during the safety briefing, we were told that it would last about seven or eight seconds. And once that time had come up, I didn't feel us slow down. I was told that there would be a huge thrust as the parachute opens because there's a real velocity shift. You're really slowing down when the parachute opens. And I didn't notice any slowing down at all. In fact, I noticed shaking. And 
that's when I was able to look up as we're falling and I see two parachutes tangled amongst each other. And with all this shaking, the violent moving, I'm nearly out of my harness, a shoe comes off. That's when I knew that we were going to die. I'd accepted it even in that moment. In that moment. So you've just come to the conclusion that this is it, something horrible is wrong and you say you've already accepted that you're going to die. Absolutely. I felt the panic. I could hear my instructor shouting. He's just yelling at me, keep your feet up, keep your feet up, keep your knees up, because he didn't want me to fall out of the harness. And I can feel him scrambling behind me. There's elbows and hands, and it looks like he's trying to maneuver the parachutes. And we're also shaking so much that I'm extremely disoriented. The only thing I can see is the ground coming towards me. And I can't, I can't say for sure how long that fall was. It, it felt like forever, but it was probably the quickest thing because we're falling so fast. But I accepted it because I didn't really see these parachutes opening. Uh, I could feel the panic. I could feel the fear. It was all very physical. But the lasting feeling even then, which is so weird to reflect on, is the guilt I felt. My entire family were there to watch me on that day. We made a family day out of it. And I've got three sisters, their husbands, my mum and dad, my niece and nephews, my boyfriend at the time. All of them were there and they were convinced I was dead too because they were watching me free fall. So even as I've accepted death, they've accepted my death, all I felt was overwhelming guilt. That's such an unusual thing to feel that people might not think would be the first kind of emotion that you'd be experiencing in a moment like that. You're falling at 80 k's an hour. What's the strongest sense you can remember? Because you said it was a really physical experience. Is it what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling? Hearing, for sure. That's a really powerful one. I remember hearing the screams of my instructor giving me instructions and the the panting, the breathing, the yelling, the, the grunting, trying to get this parachute to open and the wind as well. Just the sound that that wind was making as it's just fighting these parachutes, that, that's burned into my brain forever. And that's, they're, they're the triggers that stay with you for the rest of your life. Even 10 years later, I can viscerally remember how it sounded, what it looked like and even the physical sensations, all of it, it's literally part of my DNA now, it feels. And what was happening in those final few seconds? Just knowing that it was over, I I knew it. I could feel it. I had accepted it. And I think that's why the guilt came so quickly. And it is hard for people to understand the guilt. And I get frustrated that it's misunderstood, but I totally get why. I felt like I burdened myself with this and I burdened my family by convincing myself I brought them there to watch me die. And in those last few moments, the guilt just swept over me. But once we made impact and we bounced, we landed on the embankment of a lake on a golf course. It was just complete agony. It was searing, searing pain. The, the sensation was like my spine was being ripped out of my body. It was, it was indescribable. I felt cracked, cracked open. I was broken. And when we landed, I was gasping for air, could not breathe, was, was extremely winded, couldn't feel the lower half of my body because we're half in a lake with a parachute on top of us and strapped together. We couldn't move. The, the temperature of the lake was so cold. This is the middle of Melbourne winter. 
I couldn't feel anything and my tandem instructor was unconscious. They were unresponsive. So I'm desperately grabbing onto them saying, wake up, wake up, please wake up, once I started to come to. And even then, in that moment, besides guilt, I was convinced I was a paraplegic and I was laying on top of a dead person. And I felt responsible for his death. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Brad Guy, who survived a skydiving accident 10 years ago and has written a book called, you know, Freefall. It's about dealing with life afterwards, post-traumatic stress disorder. Got some messages coming through. Someone says, while the concept of participating in a sport such as skydiving sounds worrisome and risky, it is important to consider the relative safety of the sport as a whole. The level of safety, training and care maintained by all the drop zones across Australia and the Parachute Federation is first class. While accidents can do and unfortunately will happen, the likelihood of these happening is so minimal and the safety guards in place mitigate these risks immeasurably. And yeah, there are a lot of people who do enjoy this uh, as a hobby, as a sport, of course. Brad, people are going to be asking, how did you survive? Like, what did the instructor do? He was able to get us to a landing that didn't have a lot of obstruction. And a lot of these details were extremely fuzzy to me. And through doing the book, I had to tick everything off my list. And one thing was reuniting with my tandem instructor, who is someone that would rather stay private. So I just try to keep the story to myself and I keep their injuries and their personal details to them. But they saved my life that day. And that's something I only learned when I caught up with him for the first time after nearly 10 years a few months ago. He told me how he was able to do it and it was just through sheer complete luck that he got us to a place where there was no trees or no fence or no road. But even then he said it was a complete miracle that he was able to do it because the shaking and the velocity at which we were falling made it extremely difficult to get a handle of where we were going. So it's hard to know what variables really went into play to make us both survive but I think he he had a really big part in at least getting us to the best chance of survival that we could have. Brad what were your injuries? I broke most of my upper spine uh, and fractured some of my lower half and I tore the ligaments in my neck as well as a bunch of cracks and bruises and sprains but I've, I lost count of all of those for me it was just the broken spine and the the torn neck yeah. Brad, you write in the book, when people talk to me about the skydiving incident, they invariably think of the four. I think of the recovery, which often feels like it's never ended. When did you realise that the injuries and the changes that you suffered were not just physical? Because you had to learn to walk again, right? But there were mm. other things. You had changed in different ways. Everything had to had to start again for me. Before the accident, I felt like I was on the, the precipice of the rest of my life. I was 22 had just gotten into an amazing new relationship after coming out and coming to terms with myself. Always wanted to work in radio and got an amazing new job in the city, was going to move from the country. Everything was just going so well and I was so excited to start my life and everything derailed. So I knew very, very early on that I wasn't going to be the same and I started grieving the old Brad pretty instantly while I was in hospital, I would say. And... Coming to terms with that, I I was mourning like this parallel universe version of myself that was never going to fulfill their dreams. That's what I'd convinced myself of. When I finally got home from hospital, 
that's when the, the darkness started to set in. I was in a neck brace and back brace for four months. I was on Oxycontin and Endone, very hectic painkillers. And literally for that four-month period, didn't leave my bedroom. I was rotting. Didn't know what time of day it was. Didn't want to see anyone. Wouldn't talk to my boyfriend. Became a burden for my family. Mum and dad had to look after me. They had to feed me, take me to the bathroom. The PTSD being constantly triggered. Every time I tried to fall asleep, I was falling. I could feel myself falling. Crazy night terrors where mum would have to come in and console me after I've ripped my bedroom apart. All of this just was overwhelming. And I eventually did lose the will to live, but I was just inspired to continue going on because I didn't want to continue to be a burden to my family because I literally felt like I was a waste of space. It was complete self-loathing afterwards. I, I blamed myself and felt accountable for what I went through. Was it hard to kind of understand and accept that you were suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder? Because I guess it's something you hear a lot about, but you're never going to think it's going to happen to you. And when it does, it's probably a process of acceptance. For sure. I I felt like my rose-coloured glasses had broken that day. I, I became a real person, so to speak. I'd obviously gone through things before the accident and had to come to terms with a lot of things in my life, but nothing of this magnitude. And PTSD is so complex and so individual to the person. I couldn't just Google something like being scared after skydiving accident. N- nothing would come up. But what I did slowly start to discover after I got diagnosed with PTSD and depression and nightmare disorder, which is a type of sleeping disorder, that sort of clinical official diagnosis made me really come to terms with, holy shit, I've actually got some work to do. But what was really inspiring was when I started to look up my symptoms, when I was starting to feel better, was seeing that something like PTSD, even though the event might be different person to person, the consistency comes from how we react to it. We undergo a physiological rewiring when we under, when we go through something so traumatic. And I found connections with people who had gone through trauma because our reaction was pretty similar. We'd be overcome with fear. We'd be hypervigilant. There's this constant state of fight or flight. So that actually made me feel a lot less isolated knowing that there are people that, that might not have gone through a skydiving accident and free fell from 15,000 feet, but they've gone through other trauma and our reaction is actually the same. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to author Brad Guy about his recovery with post-traumatic stress disorder after surviving a skydiving accident. Brad, the best part of this book is that it's also a toolkit for others who've gone through trauma. Like there's going to be people listening now who have experienced something really traumatic, but very different maybe, but they can really relate to what you're saying. In fact, there's someone on the text line now who's saying they were struck by lightning and can know exactly what you mean about guilt. One really helpful tactic that you talk about in this book that I love is what you call the press release strategy. Can you explain what the press release strategy is? I love it because I love media and entertainment and working in this world. So I wanted to have a little diva element in there. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, the diva shines through. (laughs) I promised myself throughout my recovery that I'd give something back that's practical, that's pragmatic. People can actually pick it up and tell other people. I want people to look at the book and highlight things and fill it all in. So I used all the strategies throughout my therapy and put it in this book. And one of them is the press release strategy. And it's basically turning yourself into a little politician where you can picture yourself at a press conference. People are asking you all these questions about your trauma, about what you're going through, what's happening. 
because I found with my accident, because it's so unique and so miraculous, quote unquote, which is, it feels weird to call me a miracle, but people just wanted to know the details. They're like, what happened? What happened to the other guy? Were you depressed? What's going on? And I gave them access to everything. And because I gave them access to everything that was going on, I found myself constantly reliving my trauma because they saw the headline and I saw the recovery. So other people saw it completely different to me. And the press release strategy is boiling down your experience to its purest essence, which for me would be, yeah, I had a skydiving accident where parachutes didn't open and it completely destroyed my life, but I don't really talk about it. And when you say, but I don't really talk about it, and you have the hand gesture there as well, you're basically saying no further questions. And because you've rehearsed it over and over again, you take the emotion out of it. And I eventually felt really galvanized to tell my story, obviously with 10 years worth of therapy as well, but I didn't want to give people all the access. I can't constantly relive my trauma just for the entertainment of others. So whether it's trauma or maybe you've gone through a breakup or you got fired from a job and you're not really feeling prepared just to share it willy-nilly, you use the press release strategy. You boil it down. You say, yep, this is what happened. And you communicate when you feel like you're in a safe space, whether it's with a therapist or a trusted friend, and you you hold the power over your trauma and what's happened to you. Is there still stuff that triggers you, Brad? Is there annoying stuff that happens that people do unintentionally? Is there stuff that is just happening in the environment that makes you kind of recoil or takes you back to a bad place? Yeah, totally. There was a stage where I couldn't even say the word skydive. I couldn't go into a balcony. I couldn't catch a plane. Everything caused panic attacks. And I've had so many episodes, whether it's at work or like on a tram, after a one night stand, whatever it is, I've had a panic attack everywhere. But triggers are part of my life. I couldn't hear wind. I couldn't wind the window down in my car without being triggered. Or people would just run up and go boo and scare me, not knowing that that would actually send me into a complete panic episode. And I would feel humiliated, but through years of practice, you get better at it, you get more direct with your feelings, and it won't derail your life as much. But I'm not going to wish away the triggers because I did for so many years. I tried to get rid of it and be a fully complete finished product as a healed person, but that's never going to happen. But that's actually a beautiful thing. I want to continue to be a work in progress. Hey, Brad, I don't want to make too light of the situation, but I think we've all suffered a panic attack after a one-night stand. At least you've got a good <laughs> excuse for it. Oh, my God. That's, that's my next book. Yeah, we've all woken up and gone, ah, you yeah. you have a, a fair enough excuse, though, which, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's something. What's the one thing that you'd like people to know about you as someone who's been through this experience, lives with it still every day? Is there one thing in particular that you'd like to leave with people? It took me so long to believe this myself. And I think I only really came to this conclusion when I finished the book, but you are not what happens to you, but you are what you become. And I'm just feeling super proud of myself at every single stage of this process with the book. I still can't believe that I'm here and I feel so grateful just to be alive. My life's been such a blessing after just putting one foot in front of the other, all the blood, sweat and tears, learning to walk again. That's what I want to leave people with. You are not what happens to you, but you can be what you become. I'm not just that guy that went through that crazy experience and survived. I'm more than that. I'm a survivor and I want that to be my lasting legacy. I know this question is really annoying. You've written that it's kind of annoying when people ask. (laughs) I will ask. 
Have you thought about skydiving again? No. <laughs> Great answer. Every, no. I, I love the ground. I love the earth. I love Mother Nature. Here is where I belong. So I'm, I'm good for now. Yeah, thanks. I bet you are, Brad. You're extraordinary. Your book is brilliant. Free Fall, it's out now. Brad Guy, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Uh, thank you so much. And we've got so many messages coming through. Brad, people, you really got a lot of lovely words to say about you and also relating to what you have experienced. Someone says, I broke my neck and paralysed myself from the neck down. The first phone call was to my parents apologising. I get that guilt feeling completely. Another person says, I got home from work 10 minutes ago, but I can't stop listening to this story Thank you for your chat about PTSD and Brad's vulnerability. That was from Jesse and Maitland. Another person says, you know, Brad, your bravery and perseverance is amazing. Such an inspiration for other PTSD suffering Australians. Very nice to hear. Someone else, Brad, well done on sharing your story, mate. A true inspiration. Proud of you. Your old mate Darcy <laughs> from Melbourne. And a few people saying... Uh, this is the same story as Emma Carey, the girl who fell from the sky, and it is. And you might remember Dee Salmon did an amazing chat with Emma Carey last year. It's available online. You can go to the Triple J website. You can type it into Google. You'll find it. Another person on the text line, Brad Guy, what a guy. <laughs> I've had goosebumps listening to his story, Courage and Strength, and will definitely be reading his book. Thank you so much for sharing. That was from G in Newport. And that's all we've got time for on Hack for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.